dive hut. Oh god, you reckon my valet would have taken care of this for me. Kiss a minute. I'll get the diesel stove lit and we'll take the edge off. Well, it's more than edge. It's the hard boundary between liquid and solid water that water-filled animals are always banging on about. So it might be some time before I can... Some time before I can touch anything here that's not made of iron. Fortunately, the diesel stove is made of iron. Though the cold does offer the advantage that I can blame any pronunciation flubs on numb lips. As I'm going down on the stove, I'll take the opportunity to extemporise on the confluence between iced coffee and citation needed. I gave shouts out to the crews behind Cognitive Dissonance and the Scathing Atheist in early episodes of Iced Coffee. Since then, these folks have done a Voltron and formed up into the super podcast, Citation Needed. Each week, they choose a subject, read one Wikipedia article on the topic, and pretend they're experts, because this is the internet and that's how it works now. As I was working on episode 57, they knocked out four episodes, because this is I've copy and that's how I slowly roll. Two of those four episodes recounted the voyage and the sinking of the Endurance and the voyage of the James Care. I know that Cecil and Tom know about my series and my southern peregrinations because I sent them pictures of me listening to and wearing merchandise deriving from cognitive dissonance during my first contract with Mr. Black. But I think the confluence is pure coincidence, and a happy one at that. The interstitial advertisement for Cold Cocked, starring Marky Mark, is one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. And if get out there and punch that ice in the balls doesn't become a catchphrase in my circle, it won't be for want of me saying it at every opportune moment. Episodes 46 and 47 of Citation Needed is what you need if you want the funnier, faster-paced recounting of what's taken me four episodes so far and still isn't over. Links at the blog and the Facebook page.
there. I'll be keeping an eye on that as it gets going. You can't open the valve wide from a cold start. There's not much we bring to Antarctica that likes going full throttle from the get-go, and in matters that involve you either burning alive or freezing to death, I follow the instructions carefully. With that in mind, it's thermos time. Can't be fucked unpacking the stove just yet, but I've brought just enough to get me through the episode. Strap yourselves in, let's go. <clears throat> Back to the action out on the sea ice a century and a bit ago. On the 8th of April, the flow cracked beneath the James Caird and the camp cramped into the remaining solid ice, a triangle about 100 yards on a side. A leopard seal that hauled out onto the flow became a thousand pound windfall for the crew after Wilde felled it with a single shot from his rifle, raising spirits a bit in an otherwise dire situation. In the afternoon, Wilde gave the local smokers a treat, lighting a match, from which tapers of tarred rope served to light the cigarettes and pipes of the eager crowd thronging him in this interlude without the consistent service of the blubber stove, the appetite-suppressant properties of nicotine serving its only useful purpose. The men slept fully clothed, ready to launch the boats at a moment's notice. Another leopard seal hauled out on the ice as the men toasted McLeod's 49th birthday. Flapping his arms like a penguin, McLeod did his best to entice the animal further onto the floe. Whether the seal was buying the act or just trying to eat a monkey, it followed him far enough that Wilde could perform another one-shot wonder and another large cache of meat joined the larder. Leopard seal was deemed far less palatable than dog, but still better than going hungry. On the 9th, the order came to break camp and stand by the boats. Shackleton divided the crew into the boats based on a careful assessment of who would complement whom well, and who would help negate the less helpful aspects of whom too. In addition to his most trusted confidant, Frank Wilde, Shackleton's crew in the James Caird comprised McCarthy, Green, Vincent, McNeish, and the scientists Wordy, James, Hussey and Clark. As already mentioned, Shackleton liked to keep Hurley close to him because he considered the younger man's independence and charisma a potential source of discord under his leadership. The trouble McNeish caused on the march earned his thwart close to the boss, where he couldn't run up any further trouble as a barrack room lawyer, and Shackleton didn't trust Vincent to continue forswearing his bullying ways if not closely supervised. Hudson was placed in charge of the Stankin Wills, with Tom Crean at his right hand. Worsley commanded the Dudley Docker, with Greenstreet as his second. Green prepared a last hot meal on the camp blubber stove. At 1.30, Shackleton gave the order to launch, and the three boats, not heavily laden but definitely bulking out with their voluminous cargo of sleeping bags, stores and personal kit, 
carried the crews clear of the flow that was once Patience Camp. The heavy swell smashed ice against itself, and the boat crews had to box clever to keep themselves clear of disaster, picking their moments to chance each lead that might close up and sink them if they got their timing wrong. At nightfall, the crews drew up onto the largest, most solid flow they could find, and killed the seal lolling unconcernedly thereon for the pot and the stove. Close to midnight, the uneasy Shackleton stalked the ice, checking what he could to ensure the safety of his men. He was approaching the night watchman to advise close attentiveness to cracks, when a particularly large wave passed under the flow. With its weight unevenly distributed on either side of the wave's crest, the flow cracked in two directly below the sailor's tent. Holness and Howe went into the water in their sleeping bags. Howe clambered clear on his own, but Holness struggled. The sleepless boss, being on hand, grabbed the corner of the helpless man's sleeping bag and hauled the whole soggy mass onto the new flow edge shortly before another wave slammed the two halves together with a force that would have killed Holness in short order. Hudson offered Holness dry clothes, but the sailor kept true to maritime stereotypes by expressing more concern about the loss of his tobacco stash. Shackleton allowed an issue from the sledging rations to the cold, weary men huddled around the portable blubber stove that Hurley fabricated for the boat journey, listening to the gnashing of the ice and the spouting of killer whales working the newly opened leads. His companions kept Holness upright and moving on the ice through the night to prevent him succumbing to hypothermia after his drubbing. The boats launched again at eight the next morning. The rowers, out of practice and weak with the cold and their nutritional deficiencies, working the between the flows under winds that occasionally rose to gale force. With little to no carbohydrate in their diet for the past month, the work exhausted the rowers quickly, and the Stankin wheels, lacking much sail, consistently fell behind, necessitating the James Caird and the Dudley Docker ease sheets to keep within effective communications distance. When the boats finally reached the ice edge, the long-awaited freedom from their entrapment posed its own threats. The large sea running out in the open waters caused seasickness in many, including some of the experienced seamen, it being 16 months since they'd worked open waters. The risk of a boat being swamped beyond the possibility of being bailed out again forced the small armada to take refuge among the ice they'd been trying to escape. An often overlooked corollary of prisons is that they protect the inmates from the outside world as much as fulfilling their design purpose of protecting the outside world from the inmates, and the ice that so long held the Waddell Sea Party prisoners now served to protect them. The men camped on a circular flow of some 20 yards diameter, but the growing swell precluded any attempt to leave the ice the following day. The next night, only green alighted onto the ice, heating milk for everyone on the blubber stove while the men prepared for the new misery of trying to sleep in the boats. It rained, no one finding any pleasure in the novelty of water falling from the sky in something other than frozen form. Seasick, wet through, and unable to sleep, the men spent the night watching killer whales circle their craft, and of all that they lived through, this was the most singularly horrifying period for many of those whose records remain available to us. The galley was landed in the morning, and Green once more provided the warming milk that kept the men alive in body, if somewhat at a low ebb, in spirits.
The sun shone on them the following day, but the noon sextant shot this allowed brought bad news. They'd gained no ground since launching the boats. All their efforts were nulled by currents that summed against their wind and ore-mediated vectors to result in their lying 30 miles east and 11 miles south of Patience Camp. This placed King George Island and accompanying access to Deception Island and any whalers operating out of its caldera out of reach. The series of course changes that favoured peninsular and more westerly South Shetland Island destinations made at various points as currents and winds worked their vagaries on the boats came to an end. Elephant Island became the only possible goal. That night, unable to find a flow on which to camp, the boats lay in line astern, moored in the lee of an iceberg. Rough conditions forced Shackleton to cast the boats adrift later that night, the soaked men huddling together miserably as the sea around them began to refreeze under the influence of a cold snap. Looking at his shivering, salt-reddened men, Shackleton realised they'd reached a crisis point and gave the order to make all speed to Elephant Island. Fortunately, the wind shifted into the southeast and the boats made good speed, though a careful watch and fending off of ice proved necessary to prevent damage to these last wooden remnants of a once impressive showcase of the shipwright's arts. With no water and many of the crew seasick, everyone was doing it pretty tough, but the mob in the Stancombe Wills the only boat without McNeish's raised gunnels, copped it extra hard. Hudson's exertions and abrasions aggravated an abscess at the base of his spine, and the pain, and unrecognised until later, the bone necrosis caused by the byproducts of the abscess, prevented the officer fulfilling his duties effectively. Tom Crean took over command of the smallest and least seaworthy boat, Almost everyone experienced frost damage to some extent in the open boat phase of the expedition's travails, but Blackborough and Greenstreet developed frostbite in their toes worse than anyone else. Forcing some adjustment of general opinions of the man, Ord Lees offered to massage Greenstreet's feet, pressing them to his chest to share his body heat and staving off the worst of the damage. Pain, while unpleasant in the moment, is a huge relief to anyone suffering suspected frostbite. The pain caused by blood returning to the vessels in the affected area indicates the ice hasn't damaged the body part at a cellular level, and Greenstreet's gratitude for this unexpected kindness was likely expressed through clenched teeth. Sheathed in ice, knee-deep in water, soaked through, seasick and shitting himself from the all-meat diet, much of it uncooked in recent days. Holness put his head in his hands and wept, and I won't hear a word said against him for doing so. I think I need to tweak that. Give us a second. putting out a bit of heat. Always one for some apt poetry, Shackleton recalled Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Alone, alone, all, all alone, 
alone on a wide, wide sea. And concerned about overrunning the island in the dark and thereby screwing everyone's pooch, he put the boats in line astern once more, their bows held to the running sea by a sea anchor, comprising oars lashed together in a canvas sheath. For the first time, Shackleton felt uncertainty about his entire crew making it through the night, as the desperately thirsty, weakened men received one stinging lashing of salt spray after another, as the boats tossed on the waves. Ord Lees, the only man with a complete set of waterproofs, for some reason, was one of the few to get any sleep. If anything could match the misery recounted at the crisis point of Cherry Garrard's worst journey in the world, this night on the water was it. Dawn broke to calmer waters and everyone still alive, though at least six men were delirious and useless for the tasks at hand, and another six, while compost mentos, weren't able to raise themselves to aid in working the boats. Everyone was desperately thirsty, covered in saltwater boils from their sustained immersion, and chafed by salt-encrusted clothing. Blistered hands on out-of-conditioned arms could barely work the oars. Worsley's dead reckoning was dead on, though, and Clarence Island lay 30 miles to the north. Shackleton headed his fleet towards the less steep, but still pretty fucking steep, Elephant Island. If they failed to make Elephant Island, the current would sweep them onto Clarence for a second, final shot at landfall. As the day came to a close, they lay 10 miles from Elephant Island, but couldn't make headway against a tidal current. And then, a storm broke from the northwest, throwing a cross swell into the mix. Steering the boats became an art rather than a science, and bailing became an additional constant occupation. Green Street had to light a match under an ad hoc canvas shelter, so Worsley could read the compass by which to hold the Dudley Docker's head to the correct heading in the darkness. They began splitting the matches in half, to double the number of readings they could make with the brief flare provided by the remaining stock. Having not slept for three and a half days, Worsley began to nod off at the helm. Green Street replaced him on the tiller, but the captain's body was cramped up in a sitting position, and several crewmates had to massage his limbs to help him slowly unbend his back that he might lie down and get some sleep. Throughout the boat journey, Worsley's focus, navigational prowess, and skill in handling the small boat saw a sea change in the way his crewmates perceived him. Previously considered a bit of a larrikin you might not like to trust in a pinch, the boat journey cemented his reputation as a near-superhuman sailing machine and a navigational wizard. The James Caird took the Stancombe wheels in tow to prevent the smaller, slower, less seaworthy boat being lost in the darkness. A man, I don't know which one, went overboard, but his companions retrieved him before the boat left him behind. Shackleton, brushing against Vincent, felt something hard in the man's breast pocket, and on investigation found the gold watch he'd discarded on the ice at Dump Camp. Shackleton had turned a blind eye to some breaches of the two-pound rule when a contraband tin or pouch of tobacco was thought to benefit the morale or bodily health of the crew, but this personal gain arising out of his own personal loss, thwarting as it did his example of sacrifice to the common good, incensed him. No, by God, you shall not have it, he yelled as he threw it to the waves. 
The Dudley docker was lost to sight in the snow, and when the sky cleared, no one in the Caird or the Wills could re-sight her. Thinking he'd lost an entire boatload of his men to the sea, Shackleton recorded this as the lowest ebb of the entire expedition. At dawn, the James Caird and the Stancombe Wills neared Elephant Island, and Shackleton selected a gap in the mountainous shore to serve as a landing place. He handed command of the Caird over to Wilde as he transferred to the Wills. His orders passed in a whisper from his parched mouth and throat. As Shackleton steered the Stancombe Wills to the chosen site, the Dudley Docker came into view with all hands still present, easing his concerns from the previous night. After a fraught night at first trying to stay off the island to avoid overshooting it, and then trying to stay afloat in the face of the catabatic winds howling off its flanks, Worsley, in spite of a shouting match with Audley's over the urgent need to work an oar, something that the Royal Marine flatly refused to do, to the disgust of all, had kept his boat afloat and upwind of the island, his men eagerly taking ice chips over the gunwales to suck the welcome fresh water, placing their thirst ahead of the chill. Worsley estimated they sailed along 14 miles of coast without spotting any useful landing sites before encountering the other boats. Shackleton guided the Stancombe wheels past an outer reef and onto a cobble shore. He announced in a whisper that Blackborrow, as youngest member of the expedition, should have the honour of making the first footfall on Elephant Island. Lost in a stupor, Blackborough didn't move, so Shackleton bodily lifted him over the gunwale. The dazed man sat in the surf like a stunned mullet, deaf to his prestige and unable to help himself clear of the water due to his frostbitten feet. His crewmates lifted him up the beach as the Dudley Docker shot the gap next. The James Caird, too low in the water to make the landing, required relayed unloading by the docker before she was light enough to come up the shore. Rickinson collapsed during the landing and joined the frostbitten Blackborough and Green Street on the sick list with a suspected heart attack. Men reacted to their first landfall since South Georgia in a wide range of ways. Frank Hurley drew out his pocket Kodak and documented the landings. Some men lay on the stones and filled their pockets with them, poured them over themselves in a celebration of terra firma after so long on floating ice. Green took an axe and killed ten seals in a flurried mixture of hunting party and expression of maddened grief at what the Southern Ocean put them through. Wordy began geologising. Hudson and Blackborough could barely understand that they were ashore. With Green temporarily off his head, Shackleton oversaw the setting up of the portable blubber stove and cooking the first proper feed since Patience Camp seven days earlier. Bakewell later recalled being too happy to sleep. Arriving at the island after so long in so marginal a situation felt like winning a lottery, and many men, simply elated, stood up around the stove to the small hours of the morning, drinking hot milk and eating of the surfeit of seal steaks generated by Green's axemanship immediately after landing. In the morning, a closer inspection of the small beach showed the high tide marks that precluded the expedition staying there long. Audley's and Wordy climbed the scree slopes behind the beach to examine what lay inland, and Wilde took Crean, McCarthy, Vincent and Marston in the Dudley Docker 
to seek a better camp further along the coast. The climbers only found further peaks to the inland, and figured that most of the crew couldn't reach what plateau they'd encountered, even if the decision on a permanent campsite fell to the hills above the landing site at Cape Valentine. Fortunately, the docker returned with good news about a campsite seven miles further along the coast. They loaded the boats on the following morning, the 17th of April, and launched almost straight into the teeth of a gale. The three boats managed to thwart the gale's best efforts at sending them far out to sea, though Worsley, taking the Stankin wheels further from shore than the other boats, ran a close race between the strength of those on the oars and the wind. Green Street, lacking gloves, formed blisters on his hands from the rowing, and the fluid in these blisters froze, causing him immense pain as he continued trying to pull his weight. Worsley swapped him out, and with his fresh arms on the task, he set a cracking pace that just managed to bring the boat to shore. Shackleton's men came ashore at a black gravel beach on a headland they named Cape Wild. Nowhere near recovered from their seven days in the boats that got them to Elephant Island, these last seven fraught miles stole what energy the still-functioning men possessed. Blackborough was largely unresponsive. Hudson's spinal abscess put him completely out of action, and Rickinson's heart condition left him too weak to put in at the oars. But these worst cases weren't the only casualties. Many of the men, green among them, moved about as barely coherent zombies, and the able-bodied had to do multiple duties, unloading the boats, preparing a meal, and getting the tents up, the tent sites chosen as far as possible above the apparent high tide line. One of the tents blew apart that night in a blizzard, and others collapsed, their threadbare canvas no longer up to the task set them. The Dudley Docker, a heavy boat, was blown around the beach, but was, fortunately, not damaged or lost to the sea, as occurred with the longboat at Cape Denison during Mawson's AAE. Some precious cooking pots and a bag of spare blankets did get blown into the sea, and the lesson rang out loud. Cape Wild was really Cape Bloody Wild, and if anything valuable wasn't dogged down somehow, it would disappear under the influence of the storms hitting Elephant Island from the Southern Ocean, or the catabatic winds careening down the elephant's hide. Note. The island was named for the elephant seals that haul out there, not because it looks like an elephant, but I like my pachydermic illusion nonetheless. Also note, catabatic winds warm the air they comprise by one degree Celsius for each thousand feet of altitude they bring that air downhill a process called adiabatic warming. As air compresses, the molecules bang together more often. It heats as it increases in density. Anyone experiencing catabatic blasting can be thankful that the fast-moving air freezing their extremities and stealing their breath isn't a few degrees colder. With their shelters largely destroyed and the two-day-long blizzard showing up the calm and relatively warm weather of their arrival as an aberration, Many became despondent, and a sense of, what's the point, pervaded the overall mood. The sailors protested their circumstances in passive-aggressive fashion, forgetting to put their hats and gloves inside their sleeping bags, leaving the articles frozen solid by the morning, and the men were unable to turn out by reason of not having the necessary equipment. Shackleton had them dragged from their bags and set to work in the sustaining blizzard, catching and skinning penguins and hauling equipment above the tide line to prevent the frozen glove gambit getting even the first inch of traction. 
but he recognised that he needed to act quickly to prevent pessimism becoming the mean of his men. On the 20th of April, he brought everyone together and announced he would take a party and sail the James Caird the 800 nautical miles to South Georgia and raise a rescue effort from one of the whaling stations. Shackleton nominated the party. Worsley, Crean, McNeish, McCarthy and Vincent. All those nominated seemed happy to be involved. Indeed, Tom Crean had begged Shackleton for inclusion against the wishes of Frank Wilde. Wilde also begged to sail with Shackleton, but when his leader made it clear that he needed to know his right hand was in charge at Elephant Island, Wilde wanted Crean at his side to help manage the 22 men remaining ashore. Some write into their accounts that McNeish and Vincent were selected to keep them from causing dissent among the castaways, but Vincent's great strength and inner fortitude would be valuable in such a project regardless. And McNeish, besides being able to make running repairs to the boat that might lie beyond the skills of anyone else in the party, felt tremendous pride on being allocated to the James Caird, expressing his happiness to Shackleton as the meeting broke up, and he and the boss began discussing alterations to make the boat more seaworthy. McNeish and Vincent were also, with Marston, Hurley, McCarthy and Crean, singled out for commendation by Shackleton for their holding up under the rigours of the boat journey to Elephant Island. Taking them on the James Caird might have been a canny move to keep troublemakers under Shackleton's watchful eye, but it was also a canny move to fill the boat with hard-as-nail sailors who stood the best chance of carrying the coming journey off successfully. McCarthy represented another strong back with a lot of time at sea under his belt. Worsley's ability to find small islands in big seas with a sextant and chronometer, developed while working in remote islands in the South Pacific, was the reason Shackleton included him in the expedition in the first place, making his inclusion in the Caird a fait accompli. Working in near-blizzard conditions, McNeish, McLeod and Marston began preparing decking for the Caird, an affair of wood scavenged from the Dudley Docker's raised gunnels, a dismantled sledge's runners, and spare canvas, worked up by Cheatham and McCarthy, who thawed each section of the material over the blubber stove before setting to work with sailmaker's needles and palms. The structure would keep the bulk of the waves out of the boat and provide some shelter for those not on watch. The Dudley Docker's mast served to reinforce the boat's keel, and McNeish gave the James Caird a catch rig, the mainmast carrying a lug sail and jib, and the mizzen a lug sail. Gaps in the corking were again filled with lampwick and oil paints, the ersatz oakum being sealed in with seal blood. Worsley repeatedly climbed to the highest accessible point to note the movement of ice around the shore. Between periodic pack ice accumulations, southern ocean storms and catabatic downblasts, the windows for a safe launch looked sparse. McNeish had the Caird ready to go on the 22nd, but the foul weather continued. In its first iteration, Shackleton's plan for crossing Antarctica involved a single ship dropping the sledging party at Varsel Bay, and then sailing around the continent to collect them on the Ross Seaside, while the Traverse Party slogged the 1,800 overland nautical miles. A contingency factored into this plan gives some insight into Shackleton's attitude toward the use of small vessels in big seas. 
in case the overland party should be delayed beyond the time the ship could await them in McMurdo Sound, a longboat would be left on shore for an attempt to sail out to safety. I don't know where safety might lie when sailing from Ross Island in an open boat, but thankfully his colleagues convinced Shackleton to give that version of the project a swerve, though the plan does demonstrate he felt confident the technology and methods available at the time could suffice to make the crossing of large expanses of the Southern Ocean in an open boat a possibility. Shackleton discussed contingencies with Frank Wilde. Well, contingency. If the boss didn't return with a rescue ship, Wilde was to head for Deception Island in the spring. Shackleton worked up a document with Frank Hurley. To whom this may concern, viz. my executors assigns, etc. Under is my signature to the following instructions. In the event of my not surviving the boat journey to South Georgia, I here instruct Frank Hurley to take complete charge and responsibility for exploitation of all films and photographic reproductions of all films and negatives taken on this expedition, the aforesaid films and negatives to become the property of Frank Hurley after due exploitation, in which the monies to be paid to my executors will be according to the contract made at the start of the expedition. The exploitation expires after a lapse of 18 months from the date of first public display. I bequeath the big binoculars to Frank Hurley, E. H. Shackleton. Not an especially mood-lifting document to have to sign, but also not an especially appealing scenario to contemplate for the party potentially remaining marooned on Elephant Island, their location unknown to the outside world. Shackleton's orders to Frank Wilde resound with a confidence I doubt either man put much stock in. Dear Sir, In the event of my not surviving the boat journey to South Georgia, you will do your best for the rescue of the party. You are in full command from the time the boat leaves this island, and all hands are under your orders. On your return to England, you are to communicate with the committee. I wish you, Lees, and Hurley to write the book. You watch for my interests. In another letter you will find the terms as agreed for lecturing, you to do England, Great Britain and Continent, Hurley, the USA. I have every confidence in you and always have had. May God prosper your work and your life. You can convey my love to my people and say I tried my best. Yours sincerely, E. H. Shackleton. Facing the reality of a small boat on a large ocean, Shackleton must have had his doubts, but between the seaworthiness of the James Caird and the short distance, relative to the distance required to reach anything approaching safety out of McMurdo Sound, his chance was as good as it was ever going to get. 2,000 pounds of ballast, 1,500 pounds in shingle packed in bags made from blankets, and 500 pounds in cobbles, went into the boat to keep it sitting low and thereby reducing the risk of it being turned turtle by large waves. Worsley thought the weight excessive, but the resulting freeboard was deemed good once the loaded boat sat on the water. The James Caird carried four weeks of food for the six men, two barrels of water and a load of ice, blubber and a stove on which to burn it, and some rendered seal oil to cast on the water to prevent waves breaking around the boat if the weather cut up really rough. Worsley gathered his navigation materials, those charts and maps he salvaged from the Endurance, his and Hudson's sextants, 
a prismatic compass, and the last remaining chronometer. Where James Cook sailed with a single Kendall instrument for assessment, and Waddell carried three chronometers, the cost of the instruments causing his financial troubles that saw him do a bunk on the eve of his getting a significant gong, the Endurance carried 27 chronometers when it first left Plymouth. It's testament to the boon Harris's invention proved for navigation, and an emergent property of the cost per unit falling as production scales up, that the expedition carried so many pocket-sized timepieces that would work reliably under the accelerations experienced while at sea, but only the one remained in working order after the tribulations in the Weddell Sea. Worsley's piece, carried in its box on a string around his neck, offered the only means to make sense of the information deriving from a sextant. If the James Caird foundered and rescue never came, Hudson would have to navigate the Elephant Island party out by dead reckoning alone. The winds eased on the 24th and the James Caird returned to the water under sunny skies and still air. Worsley used the known location of Cape Wild as the starting point from which to take a shot with the sextant to solve for time rather than location, and thereby to calibrate his chronometer, finding the instrument hearteningly accurate. Launching the heavily laden James Caird required all hands and much swearing. Vincent and McNeish took a spill in the shallows as the Caird left the beach, the boat rolling viciously against its top-heavy loading during launch, all the men being topside at the time. Cursing as sailors can, they waded ashore. Once afloat and ballasted, the James Caird was navigated through the fringing rocky reefs, and the Stancombe Wills shuttled the provisions, equipment and remaining ballast, and the soggy McNeish and Vincent, out from the beach. Worsley guided the small boat through a channel in the pack ice and gained open water by nightfall. The destination, South Georgia, lay to the northeast. Not the nearest landfall, as the crow flies, but given the prevailing westerlies, it made more sense than beating endlessly to windward. The size of the island posed a problem, though. Where it's hard to miss South America so long as you know vaguely where you are, South Georgia is a much smaller target. The first night, Worsley took watch with Shackleton. Worsley records the boss, remarking, Do you know, I know nothing about boat sailing. To which his skipper responded with a sang-froid I doubt I could muster in the circumstances. All right, boss, I do. This is my third boat journey. Shackleton instituted four-hour watches. Shackleton, Crean and McNeish, alternating with Worsley, Vincent and McCarthy. While one man handled the tiller and their companions managed the sails and worked the pump that Hurley rigged for the James Caird, their three alternates writhed into sleeping bags and tried to pretend they weren't as cold, wet and draped across ballast cobbles as they actually were. A primus stove served to heat the hooshes and hot drinks. Gale conditions made life wet, and the motion of the boat in the cross swells made all but Worsley and McCarthy seasick, but the James Caird made some good mileage. On the third day, the skies cleared just long enough for Worsley to make a shot with the sextant. This was a team effort. Vincent and McCarthy braced Worsley so he had both hands free to work his instrument. Shackleton sat below with a stopwatch and notepaper, waiting for Worsley's call and recording the results. 
The almanac, as soaked through as everything else, was carefully prized open to the appropriate page of the log tables to allow the calculations Worsley needed to make to turn his measurement into a position correction. The first sighting confirmed that James Caird was making good speed, but that currents were making a mockery of his attempts at dead reckoning. They were a long way from where his original estimate put them, and it appeared without regular sextant shots they wouldn't stand much of a chance of hitting the small island in the big sea. Navigation at night, with the stars hidden behind dense layers of cloud, was a matter of risking a match every few hours to check the set of the wind and then holding the helm such that a pennant attached to the mast kept on at a constant angle to the boat's centreline. A northerly gale generated large waves, the canvas decking threatening to give up under the weight of water it regularly threw off and the flotsam of a wrecked ship drifted by the James Caird, a forlorn reminder of the stakes. On the fifth day, the wind dropped, but the huge swells it helped build at its strongest saw the cared sails fall flaccid while in the troughs. On the sixth day, the wind swung around to the south, bringing with it a chill from the ice pack. The wind at their stern offered scope for good speed, but the resulting following sea also risked the cared plunging her bow and likely foundering in the resulting chaos and breakages. Worsley put the cared's head to wind under the sea anchor and they hove to for the duration. The cold wind froze the spray the waves threw over the James Caird, and by the eighth day the boat rode heavy under its coating of solid rime. On three occasions the men took turns, skating their way along the decking to chip at the ice with a knife or an axe, and give the boat its freeboard back. They couldn't reach the ice out on the painter, and a block of ice forming on it eventually severed their connection to the sea anchor. The boat's natural tendency to turn broadside to the swell would see them turned turtle and their chance at salvation lost, so the men raised minimal sail and sailed to windward into the gale, losing ground on their goal, but this being better than the likely swamping by a following sea they would earn if they turned to hold course for South Georgia. Worsley describes trying to rest below decks as an interminable fight to remain still, any movement causing new contact with frozen garments or surfaces. The men were soaked and covered in saltwater boils and chafing, and the misery appeared to hold no end. The Primus stove provided the only respite. Meals served every four hours, and hot milk prepared any time Shackleton noticed someone reaching the end of their tether. It's one of the things I admire most about Shackleton, that in this moment he never singled anyone out as warranting the special treatment. He just spotted the problem and curtailed it with a call for another round of milk for all hands. Singling anyone out might have made an individual despondent about their state, and it's his intuitively sound leadership in this crisis moment that makes Shackleton different to someone like Stephenson, whose first and last instincts seem to have served himself alone. The blubber oil, slated for calming troubled waters, was consumed during the gale as a bulwark against the cold. As Worsley noted in his account, Shackleton's boat journey, the oil was only ever good for one gale in the ten days of gales they experienced. It likely served them better in their bellies than around their boat. McNeish's diary ends around this time, and given that he'd never adhered to that maxim that if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, 
It reads to me as though the miserable conditions wore him down to the point that living was all he had the energy for. Accounts of the voyage write of Vincent reaching a state of distraction that reminds me of Taffy Evans' mental state on the trek north from the Pole, and I think it likely he came closest to death of those aboard the James Caird. Crean and Shackleton, long bound by shared experiences, seem to avoid each other along with the affectionate griping of an old married couple. Worsley wrote with admiration of McCarthy's irrepressible optimism, but for me, it's Worsley who shines most in the voyage of the James Caird. Accustomed to small vessels in big seas, he reads as calm and confident in spite of the miserable conditions and the odds stacked against success. This might be hindsight bias. It might be that every skipper facing similar circumstances felt similar confidence and went about their tasks with similar aplomb, but that we don't know their stories because they and everyone with them died horribly. But we know what we know, and I admire Frank Worsley for the stoic competence he brought to the party. While far from comfortable, he was experiencing the sort of great adventure he went to sea for, and skippering the James Caird was, to use a figurative phrase literally, but for the hardware at hand, right in his wheelhouse. On May 2nd, shortly after Shackleton relieved Worsley at the helm at midnight, he noticed what he thought was a line of clear sky on the horizon. He called below that the gale was on the brink of easing, but then realised that what I had seen was not a rift in the clouds, but the white crest of an enormous wave. During 26 years' experience of the ocean in all its moods, I had not encountered a wave so gigantic. It was a mighty upheaval of the ocean, a thing quite apart from the big white-capped seas that had been our tireless enemies for so many days. I shouted, For God's sake, hold on! It's got us! My friend Hamish once stated that there's no bilge pump can match a scared sailor with a bucket, and it's that sentiment I conjure when I think of all hands trying to reinstate the cared as belonging on top of the sea rather than as part of it. They bailed for hours, gaining ground on the water that half-filled the boat and placed it in greater danger of further swampings and eventual sinking. The freak wave that caused the flooding, being a freak, didn't repeat during the rest of the journey. Oceanographers who once derided Shackleton's account as impossible, given the physics of wave generation in the Southern Ocean, have since had to eat their words as evidence of freak waves of this scale gradually accrued as shipping lanes filled with the designs of ships that weren't so readily sunk by such encounters as previous cohorts of vessels. May the 3rd proved the mental tipping point. The two-day-long gale from the south eased, and the skies cleared. They let the reefs out of the sails and set course for South Georgia once again. The noon sun allowed Worsley a sextant shot, which revealed they'd passed the halfway mark. The formerly impossible, in light of this navigational insight and with the sleeping bags drying in the sunshine, suddenly instead seemed just really, really difficult. These conditions continued through the 4th, and the James Caird made good distances until another gale forced reef sails and heaving to on the 6th. One of the water casks proved tainted with seawater, the brackish result being too salty for consumption, and the thirst that had afflicted everyone during their escape from the sea ice joined the men once more. The weather eased after just one day of galing, and they set course for South Georgia again on the 7th. As they neared their goal, 
Worsley became increasingly concerned with the accuracy of his navigation. In two weeks, he made four sights and only felt confident about two of them, the two others potentially thrown out of precision through being taken from as near to sea level as makes little difference at moments when the sun shone slightly less dully from behind misty layers of cloud cover. With no hard edge to its outline, he had to estimate the sun's centre and draw this down to a guesstimate of where the horizon lay behind the endless waves. A practised hand like Worsley could, making several shots under these conditions and working out an average, correct a position to within one minute of arc, but as that translates to a distance that might lead to their missing the island and everyone dying horribly, this uncertainty preyed on his mind. While approximately eight nautical miles from South Georgia, he informed the boss that with the compounding factors at play, he couldn't be certain of their position to within 10 nautical miles. They decided to aim for the west coast of South Georgia. While they wouldn't find anyone there, it offered more scope to hit land if Worsley's most pessimistic estimate of his navigational accuracy played out. A piece of kelp drifted past, offering heartening reassurance that they were nearing land. Cape pigeons appeared the following day, their habit of remaining near land reinforcing the kelp's message. Then cormorants turned up, and being crap at flying, these rarely make it more than a dozen nautical miles from land. At midday on the 8th, McCarthy sighted land, a mountain peak peaking above the horizon briefly as the boat rode high on a wave. Cape Demidov lay only 10 miles away, and exactly where Worsley's calculations placed it, in spite of his misgivings about compounding systematic errors, throwing out his work. With the whaling stations lying 150 nautical miles sailing in uncertain winds away, and all hands suffering from thirst first and foremost, and a wide variety of other sailors' maladies, second, third and fourth, the James Caird needed to be gotten ashore. The saltwater boils and chafing get a mention in many accounts, but no one ever brings up prickly heat, so I'm doing so here, based on empirical evidence deriving from experiments performed on myself. You don't wear damp, salty clothing for two weeks straight without your crotch beginning to rot in a fashion that only talcum powder can ease, and these guys were all out of talcum powder. King Harkon Bay presented the necessary westerly aspect that could get them in on the wind blowing at the time, but a heavy swell smashed the beaches within the bay, so the James Caird tacked up and down the outer coast through the night. The wind backed to a gale, and the crew of the Caird tried to heave to under a reefed jibsail, the minimum sail a boat might put up before it's sailing under bare poles. The gale backed up the Beaufort scale, passing through storm and on to hurricane. The men lost sight of land in the mounting seas and flurries of snow and sheets of sleet. Unable to work onto the lee shore, which would end in wreckage and death, and unwilling to head out to sea and potentially lose contact with their salvation, the sound of the surf breaking on cliffs forced their hand. The sails were set and the James Caird beat to windward for three hours to clear the danger, all hands by the helm, bailing and pumping as the boat beat itself against the steep swell the bow seams opening with each violent impact, and water squirting in where the lampwick and oil paint corking came away. Worsley railed at having brought his diary on the boat, thinking it would be lost with him, and that no one would know what they achieved. 
I find it something of a metric for the man that the strongest emotion he felt at this prospect was annoyance. How fucking cool is that? Existential threat leads to annoyance. Not recriminations against others, not self-loathing for personal shortcomings, not pain at the cutting off of future opportunities, just annoyance. I don't think there's many of us so settled in themselves that such a concise and clear-headed response might arise in the face of our doom. As the cared entered the foam backwash of waves breaking on the shore, the wind came around and they sailed easily away from the danger. With night falling, they couldn't make their landing, but they at least weren't smashed to blood-covered matchwood. In the morning light, exhausted and barely able to get their breakfast past their parched mouths, the crew of the James Caird fought an offshore wind to get through the rocky reef offshore of King Harkon Bay, taking five attempts to tack towards the gap before successfully making it through. Shackleton selected a small cove and Worsley helmed the boat onto the beach through the swell at dusk. Shackleton jumped the gunwale and almost landed in a stream of glacial meltwater running into the sea. All hands fell to their knees and drank their fill. Their thirst, the boat journey, another step toward the salvation of the crew of the Endurance at an end. 17 days and 800 nautical miles after leaving Elephant Island, the crew of the James Caird survived what is now recognised as the greatest open boat journey in recorded human history, one which has yet to be successfully repeated in spite of several attempts at following the James Caird's path. The men unloaded stores and cast out ballast to lighten the boat sufficient to get it up the beach, but the effort was beyond their diminished strength and the James Caird was left in the shore swash under a night watch while the other five men slept in a cave in the cove. The boat's rudder jumped out of its gudgeons in an impact on the shore and drifted away, and the cared broke its painter under Crean's watch in the small hours. All hands turned out to hold her until morning. McNeish dismantled much of the superstructure to lighten the boat further, which finally allowed their feeble efforts to drag it clear of the water. A driftwood fire in the cave served to cook up the albatross chicks that Shackleton and Crean brought down from their scouting foray up on the slopes around the cove. Between the state of the boat, the state of the men, and his recent first-hand experience of the vagaries of small boat operations around the island, Shackleton deemed an attempt to sail around to the whaling stations to the north coast of South Georgia too dangerous. With no whales on mountaintops or up the glaciers, no one drawn to South Georgia other than the odd oddity such as Ord Lees felt much interest in the island's hinterland, so the geography between King Harkon Bay and Stromness Station was only known as far as could be divined from sea level. South Georgia exists because of the confluence of rocks with their origins in what's now South America and Africa. Volcanoes were late to the party but hold a significant part in the local geology. So between the various faults and the magma and the erosion and the sedimentation, it's a geologically busy place. So much so that when James Waddell set up a mercury bath to act as an artificial horizon on which to make a shot with his sextant, he found the task impossible because the fluid wouldn't settle, the constant earth tremors causing ripples that prevented an accurate sighting of the reflected disk of the sun. The upshot of all this geology is steep, high mountains. And because these steep high mountains lie in the path of very wet, very strong, very cold winds, the whole lot's covered in snow year-round, and large, 
crevasse-riddled glaciers carve out deep valleys all over the shop, two of them effectively cutting the island in half with an unbroken chain of ice. And we'll hear more about this feature of South Georgia and its ecological implications when I interview Pat Lurcock about the rat eradication program he's taken part in over the past 10 years. What was known from sea level is that while heading overland to the whaling stations did constitute a shortcut in terms of distance and precluded the risks involved in putting the James Caird to sea once more, it didn't constitute an easy option. Shackleton afforded his men four days' recovery. No one worked themselves hard, but McNeish and McCarthy repaired the boat, and Shackleton, Worsley and Crean scouted the land and brought home the feathery bacon, which McNeish, having restarted his diary, recounts as very good eating contrasted with the seal and penguin currently sustaining those on Elephant Island. Vincent, the worst affected by the boat journey, collected driftwood for the fire. On the 14th, the boat's rudder drifted up the shore on the tide, saving McNeish having to cannibalise other boaty bits to jury-rig an alternate for the essential steering gear. On the 15th of May, they launched the Caird and took themselves further up King Harkon Bay, landing on a sandy beach occupied by thousands of elephant seals, one of which they killed and ate after dragging the boat ashore and turning it turtle as a shelter. Propped up on stones and lined with insulating turf, this became the Dickensianly named Peggotty Camp, serving to protect them from the three-day snowstorm that set in shortly after their arrival. On the 16th of May, Shackleton wrote in McNeish's diary, Sir, I am about to try and reach Husvik on the east coast of this island for relief of our party. I am leaving you in charge of this party consisting of Vincent, McCarthy and yourself. You will remain here until relief arrives. You have ample seal food which you can supplement with birds and fish according to your skill. You are left with a double-barreled gun, 50 cartridges, 40 to 50 bovril sledging rations, 25 to 30 biscuits, 40 Stimer's nut food, you also have all the necessary equipment to support life for an indefinite period. In the event of my non-return, you would better, after winter is over, try and sail around to the east coast. The course I am making toward Husvik is east magnetic. I trust to have you relieved in a few days. Yours faithfully, E. H. Shackleton. McNeish constructed a small sledge and harnesses for hauling sleeping bags and cooking gear, but a trial run showed the terrain to be too much for such luxurious accoutrement, and the men prepared themselves for carrying the bare necessities. Three days of sledging food per man, carried in socks, and a full primer stove, holding enough fuel for six cook-ups and a hoosh pot for making hooshes in, comprised their galley. Worsley's navigation suite was pared down to two compasses, his chronometer, and a pair of binoculars. Shoes with screws from the boat's dismantled superstructure screwed through the soles, served as crampons to provide grip on the icy surfaces the party needed to cross. A 60-foot length of three-strand rope and McNeish's adze, retasked as an ice axe, comprised their climbing gear. On the 19th, McNeish accompanied Shackleton, Worsley and Crean, in the first steps of their journey. The trio departed at 2am under a full moon in a clear sky, 
alert this might prove the last window of good weather before the southern winter really set in. Between setting off and the dawn, a fog socked the mountains in, and the men roped together, Shackleton breaking trail and Worsley navigating by taking bearings along the rope and calling out course corrections. At the ridgeline, Shackleton spotted what he thought was a frozen lake and led the team downhill toward it, thinking the level surface might offer an easy route through the island's interior. But the morning light and the lifting fog revealed it as Possession Bay on the north coast. While the dearth of knowledge about the interior of the island's geography led to this error, Shackleton's knowledge of the coast meant he knew there was no way to move east out of Possession Bay, and they had to backtrack to the heights. They slogged on, the sunshine that burnt off the fog also softening the snow and increasingly retarding their progress. They took their first meal at 9am and then spent three hours climbing up to a pass, the steep ground requiring that they cut steps in the packed snow with the adze. The pass led down to a sheer drop and they had to retrace their steps. Another two laborious climbs to passes between peaks gave similar results. They'd done a full day's marching and weren't yet past their breakfast stop. They made an ascent to the fourth and final gap. Beyond it lay a deep barranca, but they managed to skirt it and make progress to a razorback leading away from the pass. With dusk falling and fog rolling in, Shackleton knew they risked freezing to death if they spent the night in the open at 5,000 feet and proposed that they take a bet that the snow between their lofty eerie and the lower slopes shrouded in mist featured no open crevasses. They cut steps down the steepest section and then sat in tandem on the coiled rope and tobogganed into the unknown. In spite of the uncertainty involved in the ride, each man began hooting with excitement, grinning wide, and I think I would too. That shit's fun if you can pull it off without dying horribly. The slope levelled out after they lost a third of their altitude above sea level, and they marched on under the moonlight, taking a meal at 7pm. Further gentle slopes allowed two hours of relatively easy marching, and the moonlit view below them looked familiar enough to prompt hope that they'd reached Stromness. But they found open crevasses that revealed their path lay over a glacier. No glacier lies behind Stromness. Clearly going in the wrong direction and unwilling to remain on a glacier, they retraced their steps and rerouted to the northeast. Shackleton ordered a rest at five o'clock on the morning of the 20th. Worsley and Crean fell asleep in each other's arms, sharing their warmth against the damp, bitter cold. Shackleton, thinking that to sleep would be to die, woke his companions after just a few minutes, assuring them they'd rested a full hour and a half. They marched on to the sunrise, beginning to recognise geological features visible from sea level in Fortuna Bay. While Crean cooked up a hoosh, Shackleton climbed a peak to get a better view of the coastline. While at height, he thought he heard a steam whistle at 6.30. He knew that if they were where they thought they were, a second whistle would sound at 7am, calling those men roused from their beds by the earlier signal to their tasks at the whaling station. They watched the hands of the chronometer approach 7am, listening attentively, and the whistle sounded to the second. 
Besides comprising the first sign of humanity outside the expedition they'd encountered since December 1914, the whistle told them they were on course and that the station was occupied. They left the empty primer stove and marched on in the deepest snow they'd traversed so far. They followed a steep slope that gradually gave way to blue ice. Worsley advised retracing and finding a less steep and slippery slope, but Shackleton, alert that a change in the weather would likely finish them off, carried on downward, cutting steps with the adze and eventually kicking steps with his heels. This final section in the mountain constituted the most dangerous as the tired men roped in more as a sign of solidarity than as any practical nod to safety, and likely to fall to their deaths if any one of them slipped, struggled their way to sea level. Fortuna Bay's glacial till made hard slogging, but posed no risk of their falling into a crevasse or off a serac. The headland between the two bays is low, and its slopes gentle, and they crested it at midday. Green went through the frozen crust of a snow-covered tarn, wetting him to the waist, and the descent to the whaling station posed some other technical problems that less emotionally fraught and physically exhausted people can conquer fairly easily. They came to a waterfall they couldn't spot a way around. Tying their rope to a boulder, they lowered themselves down through the refreshing torrent of recently melted snow, and gained the flat ground that leads out to the bay and Stromness whaling station. They arrived on the outskirts of the human outpost at three in the afternoon after a day and a half on the march. Two children saw them and ran away in fright, and they encountered a man who didn't stop to speak to these ragged, palsied wraiths. They encountered the foreman on the foreshore and asked to see the station manager. Toralf Saul hosted Shackleton during a visit to Stromness when the Endurance spent its month waiting for further thawing in the Waddell Sea but didn't recognise him when the foreman presented him in this careworn state. Accounts of the meeting have Sorrel in tears when he finally clocked Shackleton's identity. Hot food and hot baths, a shave and a clean suit of clothes worked wonders. While Shackleton sailed to Husvik to try to arrange the loan of a ship to sail to Elephant Island, Worsley headed west aboard the whaler Samson to collect the rest of the crew of the James Caird. Sleeping in clean linen, the three men barely noticed the gale blowing through that night that likely would have killed them if they were still out on the mountains. McNeish, Vincent and McCarthy greeted the Samson with gusto, but, not recognising the clean-shaven Worsley, grumbled that their crewmates should have attended to their relief personally after all they'd been through together. They were similarly quickly transformed by their reacquaintance with modern amenities, Worsley, with some foresight, asked that the James Caird be taken in tow, and as the boat now resides at Shackleton's former school, Dulwich College, this was a good move in the eyes of people who love museums and memorials and the artefacts therein. A snowstorm kept the Samson stood off for two days, but none of the four revenants aboard, well fed and resting in the warm, complained over much. When the weather allowed them an entry, the James Caird was carried ashore by a cortege of appreciative Norwegian whalers. McNeish, Vincent and McCarthy headed home on a steamer, as Shackleton, Worsley and Crean headed for Elephant Island aboard the Southern Sky. Taken without the owner's permission, 
Shackleton's urgency to rescue his queue, outpacing communications with English owners. Captained by Captain Tom and crewed by Norwegian volunteers. The ship encountered ice a hundred miles short of the island and came to a halt sixty miles shy. Whale ships weren't built to tackle sea ice, so while Captain Tom did his best skirting the dense areas, they couldn't get any closer to the castaways without putting their own ship at severe risk. They turned back as the ten-day supply of coal ran low, making for the Falklands where a more capable ship might be available. Shackleton cabled home from Stanley, and news of his adventure, arriving in London on the 31st of May, drew big headlines and caused quite a stir in a nation already with much on its mind, but the government, already with much on its hands, couldn't spare a ship for non-military purposes. With news of the Aurora's inopportune departure from Cape Evans arriving in March, and no news from the Weddell Sea, calls were already arising that Britain should establish a rescue voyage, but received little support. With a memorial to Scott unveiled at St Paul's Cathedral in May, the Daily Chronicle published an editorial urging action. It would show ill on us as a nation if, while erecting memorials to the heroic dead, we fatally lagged in our duty towards the heroic living. The Foreign Office petitioned governments in South America for assistance, and Uruguay put forward the Instituto de Pescan No. 1. This small fisheries survey vessel came to within sight of Elephant Island, but couldn't breach the girdle of ice that surrounded it, and also turned back as the dashboard warning light indicated the coal bunkers were nearly empty, arriving back at Stanley with the engine stuttering as the boilers cooled for want of a good feed. In Punta Arenas, a funding drive by the British Association resulted in the charter of a schooner, the Emma. This only reached to 100 miles of Elephant Island before bad weather forced the return to Chile. Shackleton again petitioned the Admiralty, the Admiralty replying that the discovery would be on site by mid-September and that Shackleton should answer to its master. The Navy, as was their habit, sought to hold full control over any rescue efforts they took part in. Shackleton felt exasperated by people playing politics while his men's lives hung in the balance. The concern and charity delivered to his cause by Norwegians and South Americans showed up the British priorities. Chile provided a volunteer naval crew and a steel lighthouse tender, the Yelcho, on a promise that Shackleton would not take the ship into the pack ice. In lieu of a more appropriate vessel, Shackleton, Worsley and Crean sailed for Elephant Island a fourth time under Captain Luis Pardo. The Yelcho steamed out of the Straits of Magellan and into a surprisingly Pacific South Atlantic. Relatively calm conditions followed them south, and no pack ice lay in wait for them at their earlier stopping points. Fog that should have seen the Yelcho heave to, descended, but Shackleton, desperate that the ice not pounce on the opportunity to move in on the island again, assumed command and steamed onward, relying on Worsley's navigation that they were on the right track, and relying on luck that they should avoid colliding with ice, land or another vessel as they blindly pushed into the fog. Both Worsley and Luck came through for him, the fog lifting without incident and the peaks of Elephant Island rising above the recently revealed horizon exactly where Worsley predicted. So, 
we've got one episode of the ITAE saga to go. Cheers this episode to my Melbourne neighbours, Jenny and Brian. Jenny's the sort of person who generates a sense of community where before there was just a bunch of people. And Brian is the only person I know who's planted a forest on their own dollar and their own time. And the local wildlife and I are just two examples of the benefactees of his efforts. While I'm at it, I'll give props to Roman, because without his efforts to combat overzealous development and underhanded dumping in our district, Brian wouldn't have had anywhere to plant his trees. Take care and appreciate your coffee.